happy Monday. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I hope you all had a great weekend. I ended up doing lots of reading because of the way the news broke over the weekend. Take, for instance, on Friday night, I was sitting at the kitchen table, and then all of a sudden, I received a notification from the New York Times that a federal judge had just ordered the release of children from detention centers. We do know that the, we do know that that federal judge's rationale behind the release was because of the coronavirus pandemic and also the severity of the pandemic. We are now seeing outbreaks at immigrant detention facilities and other places like that. And so that is what I want to report on. And I have been reporting on this, so I just want to inform you that we're going to have later reporting and further reporting on that story into the week. Uh, this weekend, we also saw in Houston, Texas, as their cases continue to rise exponentially. Um, also, COVID-19 outbreaks in prisons and meat processing plants around the world. And as I just mentioned, the intensifying health crisis in Houston, Texas. I received a notification on my phone yesterday, sort of this astonishing notification. Uh, really, it was just mouth-dropping. Uh, that Harris County Judge Lina Haldaga is now entering self-quarantine after being exposed to someone with COVID-19. Well, so that story broke yesterday. One of my friends in Houston, Texas, sent me a sent me a text message on Friday, which was essentially a screenshot of a push notification that they had just received. It was an emergency notification that essentially informed residents in Houston, Texas, that they had just hit red alert, which is the highest and most severe. But among all of that news this weekend, among all of that reading and, and printing articles, among all of that this weekend... We also learned from the New York Times on Saturday that 43% of U.S. coronavirus deaths are linked to nursing homes. And I know that reporting is startling and very, very astonishing. But if you dig deeper and really analyze the presented information, you will find this. Quote, at least 54,000 residents and workers have died from the coronavirus at nursing homes and other long-time care facilities. For older adults in the United States, according, according, excuse me, for older adults in the United States, according to your New York Times database, end quote. So that reporting is from the New York Times and that reporting from the New York Times also seems to also just it really indicates that infected people linked to nursing homes also die at a higher rate than the general population. And with that said, on Friday, the Houston Chronicle published an article about an investigation into deaths at a Cypher nursing home. Now, these deaths are related to the coronavirus. Um, Hannah Dellinger from the Houston Chronicle reports that there that they are apparently that there are apparently nine confirmed coronavirus cases at this Cypher nursing home. Uh, I will keep you updated on that story as it continues to develop. Also, over the weekend, I should mention. It was reported that a Springs, Springboro nursing home announced that they had 33 new coronavirus cases. According to the local affiliate in Springboro, Ohio, none of the residents or staff that are apparently positive currently need hospitalization, so they don't need to go to the hospital at this point. Their, um, their stage in contracting this virus is not, not that severe yet. So we're going to keep you updated on that story as well. And then I read more news, which was from the Portland Press-Herald, quote, Maine sees 52 new COVID-19 cases, including one death outbreak, including one death and outbreak at a foul-mouth nursing home, end quote. So that's ostensibly new reporting on a coronavirus. 
outbreak at a nursing home uh, in Maine. If you head over to Michigan, you will find reporting from Friday on Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, Michigan Live News reports that Governor Gretchen Whitmer has moved to protect nursing homes, nursing home residents from potential second wave of the coronavirus. Okay, let's just pause there. A, we have seen outbreaks all over and and cases are rising still, continuing to rise exponentially. B, nursing homes have been hit profoundly hard by this virus and that is still happening. Therefore, when the second wave of the coronavirus arrives, we are going to need to be prepared than we were the first time. The first time it sort of hit us. It hit us as astonishing. Wow, this is a pandemic. This is a bit new to us. Social distancing. This is a bit new to us as well. So what can we do for what can we do for a potential second wave of the coronavirus to be much more equipped, have much more adequate PPE, but be much more trained and be much more well prepared? Well, if you recall back in early March, that is when that is when things started essentially shutting down. So what can we recall from those months that will essentially help us during this time as we may, as excuse me, as we are getting ready to hit our second wave of this, of the coronavirus? And, you know, health experts are warning that the second wave of this thing is going to be more deadly, more, more detrimental. And so when we hit our second wave, not just, not just for nursing homes being prepared, but as a nation, when we hit that second wave, what are we going to do to be more prepared? How are we going to avoid deaths from happening instantaneously? What can we do to improve right now while we have the chance before the second wave arrives in the fall? What can we do? Now, if you go back to this reporting from Michigan, it indicates that Governor Gretchen Whitmer has not one, but two executive orders. She ordered Two executive orders on Friday night, especially for, especially for, excuse me, specifically for protecting Michigan nursing homes and residents and staff. Michigan Live writes, quote, Whitmer on Friday ordered the formation of a 20-member housing, 20-member nursing home preparedness task force aimed at analyzing and reporting nursing home data, end quote. So that's the first executive order. Reportedly, the second, second uh, order extends the date to July 24th for visitations to juvenile facilities, nursing homes, and also groups and also group homes. It also it also quote requires staff to wear protective mask and mandated health screening for any visitors and workers who are allowed to enter. End quote. Also, on June 15th, HHS the HHS uh, excuse me the Department of Health and Human Services in Michigan issued a mandate for the testing of quote. Every resident and staff member in the state's nearly 450 nursing homes, end quote. This reporting from Michigan Live also tells us that every nursing home in Michigan has, excuse me, must have their testing come to fruition by July 3rd. And if not, the penalty for violating these health requirements and these health orders and these health mandates is $1,000, quote, for each violation or for each day that a violation continues, end quote. So they are pretty much doubling down on this, getting more stricter and enforcing this and making sure that testing is transpiring at these nursing homes and long-time care facilities where we do know the most vulnerable reside. When you step back for a second, 
and really analyze the situation. You will find reporting as well. The senior citizens that are in nursing homes and going through this pandemic, just as all of us, those senior citizens are unfortunately and sadly dying alone. I mean, yes, everyone has to be sequestered from one another because of social distancing. But what can we do to, in, what can be done as well to improve this situation? I mean, and it's, it's not just in nursing homes as well, where people are just, are, where our senior citizens are, are passing away because of social distancing and, and self-isolation and you could say loneliness. It's not just there, but it's also in subsidized homes. And Mike Dumkey, excuse me, Mick Dumkey and Haru Corin, excuse me, Haru Corin from ProPublica have done some excellent reporting earlier this month. Here's their story. Quote, someone needed to check on Leonard Graves. The 57-year-old lived alone in a senior building on Chicago's north side. And no one had seen him in at least two days. Volunteers called ambassadors usually checked on fellow residents in, excuse me, in the Edith Spurlock Samson Apartments, a 394 unit Chicago housing authority complex. But after the coronavirus began spreading in Chicago, leaders say the CHA suspended the program with the help of building maintenance workers. With the help of a building maintenance worker, a worried friend entered Graves' apartment, entered Graves' apartment on March 14th. Inside, they found him face down on the kitchen floor. From the condition of his body, it was clear he had been dead for some time. He appeared to have died of natural causes. End quote. This story is heartbreaking and also very, very pernicious. Schools, churches, businesses, movie theaters, and other places began to shut down roughly in early March. Also, other cities took earlier action. But that's essentially what happened here. It, it, was now, it has now been five months of quarantine and self-isolation. Therefore, is there anything that we have learned this far into the pandemic that we can potentially use to fixing this issue in nursing homes and also subsidized homes? Is there anything that we have learned that we can potentially sort of study or just analyze to prepare ourselves for a potential second wave of the coronavirus when it is more likely, when it's likely to be more lethal than it was in the even first wave? ProPublica's reporting on this story also indicates less well-being checked, excuse me, less well-being checks on residents. What can we do to improve this situation uh, in subsidized homes? Now, obviously, in subsidized homes, uh, senior citizens live on their own. Of course, they do. Of course, uh, medical, of course, medical assistance will come to them, uh, excuse me. Of course, medical assistance will come to them probably daily and weekly or whenever they are needed. But in subsidized homes, senior citizens do live on their own. They can leave whenever ever they want. They can go out whenever they want. So that is the freedom of living in a subsidized home. The coronavirus has created a new normal for us called social distancing. Therefore, we are instructed to stay six feet apart to avoid contracting the virus from others or having others spread the virus to us. 
And although we are staying home to stop the spread, there are also our senior citizens in subsidized homes just dying alone, silently and unnoticed. That is something that needs to be addressed and it has to be improved. I mean, this situation is, it's, it's horrifying because of what is transpiring, not only in nursing homes where, where cases continue to rise exponentially and where nursing homes continue to be hit the worst, but also this new normal for us called social distancing. And also social distancing could be potentially infecting, excuse me, not infecting, it could be potentially affecting nurses' ability to perform their daily well-being checks. Therefore, what can we do to improve this situation as cases continue to rise all over the nation? And as cases continue to just go back up all over the nation, what can we do to protect our senior citizens? And what can we do to avoid deaths like Mr. Leonard Graves, the 57-year-old who lived alone in a senior building on Chicago's north side? What can we do to improve this situation? This situation is its very much so heartbreaking. And so when, when things tend to happen like this, there is an urge to demand better action. There is an urge to fix things. And there is also an urge to really, really get better things done. And so long-time care facilities, meat processing plants, prisons, and nursing homes. Those are places where outbreaks are transpiring and it is bad and it is horrifying. We are still in the middle of a global pandemic. We are five months into the coronavirus pandemic. We are five months into this thing. What can we do to fix this? What have we learned and what can we use to better ourselves or to, to improve the situation that is so, so unfortunately and so just, just taking so many lives all over? What can we do to improve this situation? Mick Dumkey from ProPublica joins me next. In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. Welcome back. Here's here's a little bit from the piece. Quote, several weeks later on April 15th, Reynolds noticed a package slip near the building's front entrance for one of her neighbors. Emmy, excuse me, Emily Manley, who was 88 years old and had some health problems. Reynolds said she put on a mask and knocked on Manley's door three times over the next day and a half. She didn't get an answer. Reynolds then reached out to her cousin, who works at the building, as a maintenance man and was able to get into Manley's apartment. As Reynolds feared, had feared, Manley was dead. Uh, now, this has been reporting from excellent reporting from Mick Dumkey from ProPublica, as well as his colleague as well. Um, we are seeing cases rise in nursing homes exponentially. Therefore, that is a horrifying situation. So I'd like to bring Mick Dumkey onto the show right now. Uh, uh, Mick, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
All right. I want to ask you this first question. You and your colleague write in your reporting about this elderly man named uh, Leonard Graves dying in this nursing home. Is there any way that this is there any way that this could have been prevented uh, from happening? Well, I would think so. One uh, important clarification, though, he actually wasn't in a nursing home. Um, You're absolutely right. There have been outbreaks, uh, clusters of COVID at nursing homes around the country. Um, We, though, looked at a slightly different set of housing situations, and these are seniors who are living in in subsidized housing, either in public housing buildings or privately owned buildings that are subsidized by the federal government. And um, what's notable about these buildings, uh, Jeremiah, is that uh, seniors live in these buildings independently. They're not care facilities. They're just apartment buildings that are reserved for uh, senior citizens. And so it's a little bit different situation. On the one hand, the managers and owners of these buildings don't necessarily have the same set of responsibilities as at nursing homes or care facilities. Uh, but on the other hand, the seniors are, you know, just they're, they're part of the vulnerable population the same way that seniors everywhere are. And so what our story really did was to um, explore this kind of uh, unique situation with uh, all these seniors living in these housing environments where um, once COVID set in, there weren't always people checking on them. So to get back to your original question, the story of Leonard Graves, which is how we opened our piece, was a 57-year-old who uh, lived independently in his own apartment in a public housing building in Chicago. And uh, he wasn't discovered for days after he died. Mm. And um, I won't get into the uh, details of the condition he was found in, but it was, uh, it was quite gruesome and, and really heartbreaking. Um. Are, is it, are, are you worried that social distancing is affecting the nurse's ability to perform daily well, um, excuse me, daily well-being checks? Absolutely. I think that uh, we found that in our piece in, excuse me, in uh, buildings and properties where there was a well-being check system in place. Um, sometimes in, in a lot of these buildings, uh, there were informal networks. Uh, I mean, they, they may have been routine. Uh, They may have been um, uh, things that people, you know, schedules people adhere to consistently before the pandemic, but um, especially in situations where it was things like, you know, neighbors checking on one another or phone trees or things like that, they were totally disrupted by the pandemic. I mean, uh, we know most people had around the country had some kind of shelter in place orders and seniors in particular were uh, told to proceed with extreme caution. So we found that a lot of residents of these senior buildings, you know, were basically uh, even those who were healthy were, were staying inside and they just weren't circulating much. So that really limited the social interactions at the buildings generally. And then in places where, as you mentioned, there were, some kind of professional staff, whether they were social workers or outreach workers, or in some cases, uh, some kind of nurses, um, their ability to reach everyone was also limited. A lot of people were told to work at home and to do wellness checks by phone, which, uh, you know, makes some sense actually at the height of the pandemic, but Mm -hmm. the checks still have to be done. And then if you don't reach people, you have to have a plan for following up. Uh, to make sure that you can connect with them or to see, you know, that they're okay. 
Um, is is are 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 there any reports of testing in these subsidized homes? We did not encounter any instances. We didn't hear about any instances. This was as of several weeks ago. Uh, it's been a couple weeks, excuse me, since we published a piece. We did not hear of any systematic uh, testing regimens at any of these public or subsidized housing buildings that we looked at. And just to give your listeners a, a sense of the scale, uh, we're talking in Chicago, there are about 10,000 seniors who live in uh, Chicago Housing Authority, that is public housing senior buildings. And then there's another 10,000 or so who live in other privately owned or privately managed buildings that are subsidized by the federal government. So we're talking about 20,000 people just in the city of Chicago alone. And from what I understand, you know, this is the same thing has been happening in senior buildings, uh, subsidized senior buildings around the country. Um, So to answer your question again, Jeremiah, what we found was uh, we got a hold of, through Freedom of Information requests, we got a hold of a lot of email correspondence internal to like the Chicago Housing Authority. And so what we saw there was when there were cases of people who um, showed symptoms of coronavirus, then they got tested. And then if they were found to be positive, then there was a, a quarantine and cleanup system that was kind of put in place after the fact. But there was mm. nothing, to get at your point, there was nothing uh, that we came across that was sort of systematic on the prevention side. Are there any reports of visitation policies being restricted at the time of a pandemic? Yes, that did happen. Um, I wrote an earlier piece specifically about the Chicago Housing Authority and the public housing response here uh, to the to the pandemic. And um, what I found was they were pretty slow. Like the first couple weeks, uh, like many agencies, um, they were caught a little bit off guard, weren't fully prepared for this. Mm-hmm. And but but after that, I think that um, once they did get it together, they did you know, implement some restrictions on who could come and go from the buildings, which again is hard. I just want to reemphasize this point. These are buildings where uh, seniors live independently. They are not confined there. They are not nursing facilities. So Mm. it's just like any other apartment building where people, you know, they, they pay their rent, they can come and go live as they please, except in these instances, they are limited to people 55 years old and older. Um, so, uh, but after the pandemic set in and it was clear what the scale of it was, there were some restrictions put in place at public housing buildings on visitors. There were, um, they stepped up cleaning, uh, I'm told. Uh, now, you know, at some of the other buildings that were privately owned buildings, um, you didn't see things necessarily that were uh done as systematically or as thoroughly so mm-hmm. we quoted a resident the section you read earlier um the resident jackie reynolds she lived in uh she lives i should say in a uh, a privately owned federally subsidized building and there to uh they reduced staffing because they wanted to reduce the risk of transmission to to and from their staff uh, mm-hmm. but that meant there was no one at the front door So while they officially had a restriction in place on visitors, there was no one there to make sure that it was carried out. Um, Mm. And so you heard a lot of situations like this. I think it was just kind of 
helter skelter in a lot of places and people really trying to, you know, uh, figure this out by the seat of their pants. Is, um, is the reduction of staff, um, causing an effect here? Uh, I think so. I mean, um, you know, again, we found, uh, several instances we found um more than half a dozen cases where people uh seniors had died in these apartment buildings and no one had discovered them for uh, in some cases several days in a couple instances up to a week later i mean imagine that it's a week before someone even learns that uh there's a person who's died in one of the apartments Mm -hmm. and so from talking to people we were told that uh you know, some of the normal, some of the normal staffing levels uh, that had been scaled back or had turned from on-site kinds of services to remote telephone services uh, definitely could have affected, you know, either preventing the death or certainly doing something to make sure people were checked on sooner than within a week. Mm -hmm. Uh, So social workers in some cases weren't making the rounds the same way. Um, like we said, there weren't always people at, at the front door, uh, to check in or to receive, uh, calls, uh, from residents within the building. Uh, so there's a whole range of things that happen. Is there a possibility of improving this situation and of, and of, of, of avoiding, uh, many more deaths in these, in these subsidized homes? I think so. I mean, there are advocates out here who certainly are arguing that in Chicago. And, um, you know, I haven't we haven't fully explored this, but I'm guessing there are different kinds of conversations having happening about this in other places. And it's just, you know, an extension of the broader question, Jeremiah, which is uh, how do we make sure that the most vulnerable people in our society are not disconnected? And in this case, Mm -hmm. we're zooming in um, again on, on seniors who live independently in Uh, homes that are subsidized in one way, shape, or form by the government. So you would think with the government having a hand in, uh, you know, keeping these buildings going and providing housing to people, uh, there's certainly a compelling argument that uh, there needs to be more government involvement in making sure that people are not disconnected, especially during emergency situations like a pandemic. Um, It's interesting. There we're, we're in Chicago coming up on a 25-year anniversary of a heat wave that killed uh, hundreds and hundreds of people here in way back in 1995. You're pretty young, so I don't even know if you were around back then, but <laughs> I, 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 was, I was here, and I, I was a, a much younger person and uh, living in my own apartment without air conditioning, um, and it was just sweltering, and that was an incident that, or, or you know, a series of, of things that happened where there was a different kind of emergency. And um, just like during the pandemic, people who were isolated in one way, shape or form because of age, because of poverty, because of racial segregation, um, ended up being the most vulnerable. And they were the most, they accounted for most of the victims. And after that, there was a real push here to make sure that there were uh more adequate emergency responses in place for heat, making Mm -hmm. sure people either had air conditioning or they had access to an air conditioned facility, or at least had somebody checking on them um, in subsequent, you know, kinds of of heat emergencies like that. Uh, So Mm -hmm. you would have thought after 1995 that we, you know, 
kind of learned our lesson, but this was a new emergency this time around, and kind of the same sort of thing happened again. So I've talked so long, I don't remember exactly your original question, but (laughs) I think the point is just like all of these should be – they're, they're very, very painful instances, and uh, I think the first thing you asked me was, could this have been prevented? I think you know these are, in many cases, um, deaths that it certainly seems like more safeguards should have been in place, and you would hope that means that fewer people needed to lose their lives alone the mm-hmm. way that they did. Um, have there been any reports of preparation as far as a pandemic sort of astonishingly coming you mean um, beforehand? Were, were they were there preparations for this incident? Like were they were people prepared? Uh, yes. I think that uh, the answer to that is no. They were not adequately prepared. Mm. And um, you know, I, I say that uh, I want to be fair because I don't know how many people were prepared. There were probably a small percentage of people in the entire world who had privy to information. Uh, about how bad this was going to be. And maybe even they didn't all understand how bad it was going to be. Now, there's a whole debate going on, um, not to go down this rabbit hole, but there's a whole debate going on about, for instance, what the federal government knew, when they knew it, what their response was. It's hard to argue that their response has been adequate or on point from the federal government. I think the same thing is true for almost every other level of government. Um, Around here... There's a widespread feeling that, um, not shared by all, certainly, but by most people, I think that the mayor of Chicago and the governor of Illinois, um, once they did kind of respond, it, it took them a little while too, but once they did respond, that they responded, uh, you know, very, cons- very conservatively. They responded very cautiously, and that is to say, um, they really tried to limit social interactions um, in a way that was criticized by some people. But a lot of people are uh, also grateful. I think the, the widespread feeling is that it was really hard for everybody, but that uh, the response here, sudden orders, limiting social distancing, we're still not all back to normal in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and knock on wood, though, we have not seen the kind of spikes that some other states that opened up that didn't close down to the, the same extent and that opened up much sooner that they are seeing now. So what I'm getting at, um, Jeremiah, is I do not think that, uh, I haven't seen many government entities that were fully prepared for this, but I think some of them ended up responding uh, much more swiftly and much more adequately from what we know right now than others did. Um, Mm. And I think only time will tell once we kind of look at this with a little bit, we're not out of it yet, but once Mm. we're able to look at it um, with a more complete set of information and we can kind of see what worked and what didn't, we'll be able to answer that question better. But I think it's definitely safe to say that, uh, the preparations were not adequate uh, in all instances. And hopefully the next time around, including if there's another wave of this, uh, next year that, uh, we'll be much better prepared. All right. Once again, my guest is Mick Dumkey. He is a reporter from ProPublica. Uh, Mick, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeremiah. Great talking with you. Thank you. We'll be right back. 
Hey, TGPS listeners, if you ever run out of episodes to binge on this podcast, then go listen to my other podcast called U.S. Presidents, where I talk about the presidential administrations from 1 through 44, and I also talk about those presidents and how it's intrinsic that we recall the history from back then and learn from it now, as we are currently dealing with uh, a health crisis and also some other simultaneous crisis crises right now in the United States. On that podcast, I reflect on presidential history and reflect on the previous presidential administration and I also talk about where we are now and where we were back then. And I also express and divulge some of my knowledge with you. So once again, U.S. Presidents, it is a podcast about the presidential administrations from back then, and I'm moving my way up to now. Take a listen. Today, the state of Iowa reported 290 coronavirus cases. Iowa has more than 28,000 coronavirus cases. And over the weekend, they reported some astonishing news reporting from the hill quote iowa won't iowa won't require face mask when the school year starts quote the iowa department of education on thursday released guidelines for reopening schools in the fall that did not include requirements for practicing students or teachers to wear face masks undergo temperature checks or practice social distancing instead the state will allow the 327 school districts and 119 accredited non-public schools to make their own recommendations quote requiring face coverage for all staff and students is not recommended the document states quote allow the personal use of face coverings by staff and students end quote once again, last reporting for the Jeremiah Patterson Show today. Uh, thank you for being with us on this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Please join me tomorrow for a TJPS special on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. You know, it might be an exclusive or in a special report, but please join me for tomorrow and later without this week as we have lined up guests for you and great reporting. So thank you for being with us today. Have a great day. Remember to stay positive and inspired. Don't forget to share this podcast with a friend or a loved one and see you tomorrow.